Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we talk about engineering mistakes that are embarrassing, but fortunately, not fatal. We also joke around about freedom units, which is our snarky way of saying, yes, we know that it's crazy that we're still working with Imperial units. And an apology in advance to our German listeners, who will grimace as they hear me horribly mispronounce a German word. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 133, Embarrassed Engineer, June 27, 2017. So, Carmen, do you ever make mistakes? On the job or in life in general? Uh, either one. Whatever you like. Well, yeah, one time I thought I did, but I was mistaken about that. <laughs> Flawless victory. Boom. <laughs> no, I have made many, many mistakes. Any you wish to admit to the uh, the entire world? Uh, I mean, the trial's still ongoing, so I, I probably shouldn't. Yeah, I'm okay. going to drop off. I just want to say hi to all our listeners, and then my lawyer right. won't let me say any more than that. Right, for, for legal reasons. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm surprised he you, allows you to admit it was a mistake. Well, I mean, you know, the, the caps didn't fit. They got to acquit. <laughs> wow. That would be a contraindicating fact? I'll go with that, yeah. Okay. Maybe. Legally, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, so engineering involves failure. And uh, we're all, as engineers, we're all human. We have a tendency to every once in a while make uh, a mistake. And so we thought that in this episode, we'd talk about shortcomings, uh, engineering problems that hopefully weren't complete tragedies. In in some cases, they, they had negative outcomes, but... Uh, uh, we we previously did an episode on failure, and we thought we'd we'd try to talk uh, this time maybe about those where less of a, a loss of human life occurred, and, and maybe there were some humorous aspects to it. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the embarrassed engineer, the engineer who gets to walk away afterwards and say, Whew, that was a close one, but it turned out okay in the end. So uh, what about you, Adam? Do you have any stories that we might uh, talk about here this evening? Well, um I can't even think of any of the any good personal stories, um, and there there are too many of them. Well, I, I'm sure, like Carmen, you've not made any mistakes. So, yes, we will go with that. Well, come on, you didn't one time like accidentally just lead a bridge to nowhere and then forget to put up some signs like we all have. Um, see, I was informed by uh, someone that. Roads connect bridges, so there really is no bridge to nowhere. I mean, mm. it's a bridge that doesn't have a road connecting it to to another bridge. Gotcha. <laughs> Did you once accidentally build a trap street on a map? <laughs> a trap street? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's still a thing, but map makers used to incorporate one street that didn't exist onto their maps, so they knew if anyone ripped them off. Oh, if somebody copied their map? Yeah. It was called this yeah. trap street. You've now made Apple Maps make so much sense. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of engineering failures, topical. At first, I thought you were talking about the streets where 
with with all the mapping software out there, uh, and especially things like Google Map, that traffic is being routed through neighborhoods that were never intended for that amount of traffic. The algorithm that that Google uses says, "Hey, run through this back neighborhood and down this alley, and you can get to your destination, you know, a minute quicker." And so all of a sudden, small towns have, you know, an immense amount of traffic trying to get down these back alleys. And, and, uh, I guess some of the, the, you know, local communities are, uh, setting up, uh, speed zones, speed, speed traps to give tickets to people coming down that way or even blocking the streets, uh, to get people to quit doing that. Yo, people do that in my neighborhood too. When there's an exit on or a, uh, crash on the highway, they all divert through my neighborhood. It like doubles the time it takes me to get home. Huh. And I'm like a mile from my house. It sucks. Google Maps is, uh, it causes a lot of problems for traffic engineers. It, it's nice when it works. I mean, it's definitely rerouted me a few times around an accident and I've just kept cruising. But you got to catch it at just the right time before everybody does it. Yeah, I, I have noticed that tendency that when the the accident occurs that uh, it'll tell me that uh, I'll see there's a blockage and it'll be 14 minutes and I'll go, okay, I can live with 14 minutes. But when I'm in the middle of the slowed down area and it suddenly extends it to 25 minutes and okay i'm late for the meeting yeah uh, i i i'm guessing that uh, they're doing the best they can but it seems that uh, i always need to add a little extra number to to whatever t- delay they tell me i'm gonna have i got rerouted once and it said it was gonna take me the same amount of time to get home this was on like a four-hour road trip yeah and i was like oh okay cool i'll take that and then in the time it took me just to pass the point of no return Yes. Uh, to instead take a longer route, but that had no traffic. Yeah. Um, they shut down the highway. Like they had to close <laughs> it completely. So it just screwed everything up. And the four hour <laughs> ride took almost seven. Oh my. And I cried so hard. <laughs> I was trying to outsmart the Google algorithm and be like, all right, if I take this instead of that, then I can get around where it's going to send people now. And oh my God, it's a nightmare. At least you weren't blindly following Google. Oh, I was for a couple minutes until I realized what the hell was going to happen. Then I tried to get ahead of it, and it only works so well because, you know, the I-95 corridor right next to the ocean, there's only so many extra routes you can take. Uh, our guys in the field get tired of saying or uh, arguing with people who, well, but Google tells me to go this way. My GPS said to go this way. The road is closed. There was a detour back there. But Google <laughs> tells me to go that way. <laughs> Which is funny because usually Google is pretty good about knowing road closures and stuff. Mm, At least around me. At least around me, yeah. I don't live in sticks. (laughs) People drive on my roads. So there. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Well, tell you what. We kind of uh, took a detour there, Adam. You don't don't want to turn the podcast into Jerry Springer where we just throw – Throw shade at each other and get into an internet fight. <laughs> no, let's 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 try to uh, aim for something maybe a little higher than that. I'm gonna dox Adam now. His name isn't Adam; it's Steve. He's been using a pseudo name this whole podcast for years. Yes, that's what's been going on. <laughs> I thought his real name was was Elon. Oh man, the plot thickens. <laughs> I wish I had that money. <laughs> Uh, All right. So, Adam, what uh, what story of engineering failure do you have for us or engineering embarrassment? Uh, well, uh, I, I guess I'll start off with uh, probably the, the most uh, widely known engineering disaster 
or near engineering disaster of uh, at least our generation so far. Okay. Um, and those younger listeners may have no idea what we're talking about. But um, around the turn of the century, there was this thing called Y2K. Hmm. Is that the name of a band or something? Uh, probably. No, it was the Madden Madden game that year for uh, PlayStation. Oh, right, right. Oh, so football. Yeah, I think so it was, was a yeah, great yeah, game. Yeah, sports ball. <laughs> it, 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 and that game just never worked out right. No. You know, it, yeah. If you if you played as your favorite uh, favorite team, you always lost or something. Okay. <laughs> like that. No. Wasn't that the end of the Madden franchise? Yes. Okay. Last Madden game. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Didn't know. Me neither. Right. Yeah, so the the game was was uh, pretty much a failure for everybody except uh, generator manufacturers that seemed to do pretty well that year. Mm-hmm. Bottled water and toilet paper also skyrocketed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, and 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 Adam, for those who might not know, what was Y two K? So um, Y two K was a, a scare with computer systems that uh, in the early days of computers, nobody had thought about the fact that when the the century changed. All of a sudden, numbers, uh, the, the dates, the year um, gets really small again if you use two digits. Yes. And tons of systems restored the year as two digits. And now all of a sudden, as we're coming into the, the turn of the century where everything's going to roll to zero, overflow errors and systems were going to mess up and people were going to have uh, their bank accounts wiped out and, and, and all sorts of things people were concerned about happening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so why Y2K, Y was for year, and 2K was to represent 2000. Yeah. And it, um, so fortunately, um, well, some systems had already thought, well, why not just use two more bytes or bits mm-hmm. or whatever the things are. The words you were looking f- there for was bytes. Yes, bytes. That was the word I was looking for. Um, and so some systems did, but uh, there was just this massive effort of patching all sorts of computer systems and and uh, it was a big deal to buy things that were Y2K compliant for oh, a geez. period of time there. You remember that? <laughs> no, I worked at Best Buy then and we'd have, you know, basically would stick uh, a Y2K compliant sticker on anything you could buy. You know, just Y2K, <laughs> just Y2K compliant printer cable and... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, everything. This modem is Y two K compliant. So is your ink cartridge. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you guys are a little younger, but I was actually uh, over at some friends for that moment. You know, celebrating New Year's Eve and the the New Year, and we did have flashlights ready at hand because you know we'd been told that the power might go out. You know, uh, just as soon as it flashed over to midnight on uh, January first, two thousand. Uh, but no, there was no problem. I am pretty sure that it was just a giant joke designed to ruin a millennium celebration. <laughs> <laughs> Some guy got his work schedule and he was like, I can't work on New Year's. And he orchestrated the whole thing. No, I, I can't work on New Year's 10 years from now. <laughs> well, I mean, and it, but it was a great time to know how to write COBOL. Right. I mean, because all the old like, systems were, yeah, business systems were in COBOL, or many of them were. Yeah, we weren't talking crazy embedded systems or stuff like that. We were talking about like stuff backed up on giant tape drives. This effectively made an entire generation hunker down for a one in a thousand year celebration. 
I remember the first time I heard about Y2K was after watching an episode of Nick News. <laughs> <laughs> true story. True story with Linda Allerby. <laughs> so here's the funny thing. This will happen again. In the year 3000. Uh, sooner. 2038, isn't it? Oh, right. Yeah, because like the way they stored the date. Yeah. Good job, guys. Hey, whatever. All those people will be dead by then. It's someone else's problem. They kicked the bucket down the road 30 years. That's pretty good. Well, I, can't we do like 1028-bit date format? Date codes. You could, do, you could basically do seconds until the end of the uh, – until the sun goes out. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but then our Earth-faring uh, ancestors – or not ancestors, uh, Earth-faring – I don't know what the word I'm looking for is right now. Descendants? Yeah, descendants. There we go. Reproductive spawn. Uh, <laughs> then they're just going to have to deal with it. We've kicked the can down a few millennium or billions of years. I am fine with that. <laughs> Whatever. Let's just code everything in Python. Data types don't matter then. <laughs> the compiler or the interpreter figures it all out. Yeah, you just have to update the interpreter when uh, when the time comes. No, no, no. It'll just interpret what has to happen. That's how it works. Right. So the problem occurs at 3.14.07 UTC on the 19th of January, 2038. Giddy up. I'll make sure I'm on an island somewhere having a cocktail. Yeah, I'm going to be retired by then. <laughs> what is this retired word that you keep using? Uh, I think it means being homeless by choice. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Cool. Well, any other details you have on Y2K you wish to share, Adam? Well, uh, the bottom line is after that giant, uh, uh, the, the yeah, craziness that, that proceeded and the, oh, well, maybe it just hasn't caught up to us yet. Um, keeping in mind, this was the year 2000 and most people were not very good at technology at the time. Still not, but you know, whatever. Lesser good at technology. <laughs> um, how about that? Many uh, not goods. You know, th this is this is a time before the iPhone for those people that are those young listeners. Um, you didn't carry a computer around with you back in those days very often. Mm. But anyways, uh, nothing really happened, um, at least nothing major. And uh, the world has gone on and now we've kicked the can down the road. And uh, yeah, that's about all that happened. And, and lots and lots of uh, canned food going out of date in bunkers. Right, and and you could buy a mobile or portable generator pretty cheap there, in uh, in in May, in March of two thousand. <laughs> I mean, I, I I do want to point out that like, you know, anyone who's old enough, this is no news. But like, if you're if you're young enough not to have experienced this, like the news coverage that night, they literally had live feeds from people standing outside of NORAD, where you know they were having press conferences that there were no nuclear weapons launched accidentally that night. Well, in, in all seriousness, in all yes. seriousness, I, I, I still remember the, I still remember the quotes or the, I can paraphrase the quotes were like, they indicated that there were no non-theater missiles launched that night. And there was like this kind of correction, like, what do you mean? No non-theater missiles launched? <laughs> like, why are, why were there missiles launched at all? And then it turned out that like Russia was launching, you know, tactical ballistic missiles into Chechnya and we were tracking them, you know, but it's like, why did you need that correction? None of like, are we going to die or not? Right. Now, let, let, let's keep our, uh, 
Let's keep our discipline pure. That wasn't an engineer's fault. That was a computer scientist's fault. We were blameless. Let's cast let's cast our engineering uh, net as wide as we can for some of these errors. Okay. Well, and, and legitimately, there was a massive effort to patch systems, and that truly did need to happen. Yeah. Um, but we did it. The world didn't end. And uh, we made it to the next end of the world crisis, the Mayan calendar um, date. Into the, the Mayan rapture. calendar. And only Macho Man Randy Savage was affected. Was that 2012? I think so. Uh, that I right. still contend the world actually did end in 2012, and this is all just a giant illusion. Whatever, man. It's turtles all the way down. Yep. Yeah, 2012. And my understanding is it wasn't actually – the Mayans didn't believe it to be the end of the world. They believed it to be the beginning of the next cycle or actually a, a time between great cycles that was uh, like a, a, a great time in the world for some period of time. Hmm. I don't know, a couple hundred years or something. And we just decided end of the world is what that meant. Between the flat earth flips over. <laughs> so we're in the in-between period now. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, by the Mayan calendar. And it was supposed okay. to be a wonderful time for some period of time. But uh, they said that didn't really. No Can't noticeable help. changes either. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll move off of the uh, calendar and and date problems. Do you have anything, Brian, for us? Uh, some engineering situation? Oh yeah. I'm going to say this now so that I say it once and I don't forget it. Lake Penor. Yes. Now, Jeff, you're aware of this. Our our uh, Jeff and uh, sorry, our Adam and Carmen aware of this? Not before you uh, you posted it. Nope. Okay, so I tried to use my criteria that nobody died. And uh, this is the most hilarious large-scale engineering disaster that I could find that nobody died. Um, you had a, a crew that was subcontracted by Texaco to drill for oil in a, uh, a shallow lake in um, Louisiana called Lake Pinor which I believe emptied into the Gulf. They somehow got their location wrong. And instead of drilling into the rock deposits or the soil deposits that they expected, accidentally punched into a salt mine. Oh, I think I maybe did hear about this. I don't, and the name didn't ring a bell, but the story is. Oh yeah. So if you've ever seen like, you know, old school cartoons of like like you know whirlpools and ships going down into it do yourself a favor and go actually watch the youtube videos of lake penor's uh whirlpool because what effectively happened is you know they punched a fairly small hole into a mine and as water rushed in the hole got bigger and bigger and bigger as it as it ate through all of, as it dissolved the salt and the soil surrounding it. And all of a sudden the drilling rig goes and barges that were on the lake started to go. They emptied the lake into the mine. And, um, I, I believe the river or the canal that flowed out of the lake into the Gulf started to flow backwards and the Gulf started emptying into the uh, mine as well. And so you have these crazy <laughs> videos of like a vortex swallowing up huge boats uh, with the hilarious anecdote that the hundred some foot waterfall that formed as 
you know, the golf was emptying into this mine was the first, was the first or the largest waterfall in Louisiana history. That's <laughs> <laughs> interesting that a waterfall has to have a in history uh, attached to it. <laughs> yes. I mean, that nobody died is, <laughs> is amazing. If it, 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 when you watch the video of this, it's just, it's incredible. So effectively they empty the lake. Right. Um, right. The, the Wikipedia entry indicates that there were 55 employees in the mine at the time of the accident. Yeah. Uh, and that, uh, they were able to escape. Although, uh, three dogs apparently did not make it. Same with galloping Gertie. It's the dogs again. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. On a, on a score of nobody dying and catastrophic results, this one's pretty high. Yeah, I would say so. So now, if uh, if Carmen's going to make the point about um, about computer scientists causing Y two K, I'm going to say this is a surveying error. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, definitely not engineering. <laughs> hold, on, hold on a second. You want to push us away from the civil engineers? <laughs> well, uh, it wasn't really a civil engineering thing. Um, I mean, there definitely were some some elements there, I'm sure, but it. According to the the reliable source Wikipedia, um, the the problem was essentially that uh, the the people who were were drilling um, thought they were using UTM coordinates, Universal Transverse Mercator, uh, when in reality they were in um, not UTM but a transverse Mercator projection is how they located where they were, and so um, they're using the wrong coordinate system. So, in other words, Apple Maps caused this. Um, I, I don't think it was Apple, but, uh, at, in, uh, 1980, but yes. <laughs> the iPhone negative 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so seriously, do yourself, if you haven't seen this, do yourself a favor and go watch the videos on YouTube. Yeah. We'll, we'll post a link in the show notes. It it's next level. Incre- incredible. Well, neat. So Carmen, do you have a story for us? Uh, yeah, mine is much smaller scale and it's okay. more personal because it's me. <laughs> it's you. Yeah. I, I thought we determined you don't make any mistakes. I'm trying to make some up to help my case. Oh, okay. The world doesn't need to know I'm uh, an infallible <laughs> engineer. <laughs> okay. No. Uh, so just, uh, as I was getting trained in engineering, uh, you know, you learn the little tips and tricks as you learn to take measurements and everything. And uh, I had time-traveling pulses on my scope one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the first time, yeah, whatever, I'm learning. I'm a new engineer. The, the second time, though, yeah, I got I got some flack for that one, <laughs> um, trying to figure out what the hell was happening. So with the buck regulator, or any voltage regulator, really, one thing you want to check for is um, a line transient. So the classic case, you know, you uh, – you step a load and you watch the output voltage and make sure it stays within the, uh, you know, whatever limits of your application. But you can also do a line transient, and that's useful for stuff like, uh, you know, your laptop because you run it on batteries and you plug the adapter in and the input voltage to the regulator jumps up. In some cases, there's some system stuff, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to, you know, see what happens if you jump from, say, you know, 6 volts to 12 volts or 12 volts to 6 volts as you remove the adapter. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you have to take real special ca- uh, care to make sure that your uh, your oscilloscope probes are de-skewed uh, so the oscilloscope can account for any delay in the probes. 
And if you're using active pro or passive probes when you should be using active probes, you can actually get the disturbance on the output voltage to show up before the pulse hits. Okay. So, yeah, I've made that mistake a few times, and then I started ringing some alarm bells, and everyone's like, dude, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Did you look at what you're, what you're taking on your scope? There's no way the output voltage moved before the transient hit. And I was like, well, maybe it did. <laughs> right. And I can actually tie that into a bigger mistake. That was uh, with one of those particle colliders when they found out that – or they thought neutrinos were going to travel faster than light and it turned out to be a loose cable. Same thing. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, now you have to explain to me with on these uh, – when you have de-skewed uh, probes – uh, now, is that to do with the uh, the skew, the stock keeping unit? Do you have to like remove some sort of barcode or something? No, no, no. Skew S K E W. Oh, yeah. So you know the you, you account for all the little delays and mismatches in the probe, and depending on which oscilloscope you're using and which probe, there could be a fancy autocal to deskew it, or there could just be a uh, you know the scope knows you put in probe, uh, you know. ABC 1000, and that typically has a skew of 25 nanoseconds or something. So it just puts in the typical value instead of measuring that particular cable. Um, but for fancier scopes, there's usually a, a calibration thing you can clip into that will automatically de-skew your probe. So are, are you telling me that your instrument doesn't know what information you're after and won't automatically give you what you need? Surprisingly, yeah. That's, that's true. Huh. <laughs> You have to know about your equipment. So, yeah, you know, the first time I made that mistake and said, uh, you know, something's going on here, you know, it was a learning opportunity. But the second or third time it happened, uh, they started to make fun of me. And now I'm paranoid to check for it. <laughs> so I guess it worked after all. I guess so. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Electrons still don't travel faster than light. <laughs> Unless you try really, really, really hard. That's true. Well, can't you slow light down, though? Only in a medium. Yeah, but nothing in that medium will travel faster than light. Yeah. You know, like they they've taken pictures of a photon in a block of unobtainium, because I don't remember what the hell it is. They've slowed <laughs> it down to near zero. But, you know, if you were to hit that thing, the speed of sound would still have to be slower than the light. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a, a physicsologist, but I'm pretty sure that still holds true. I don't know any other physicologists. Are you the first one? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Jeff, what is your uh catastrophic engineering failure? Well, I came across one that uh I had not heard about before and it deal uh, deals with the uh the space shuttle program. And so of course there were several tragic failures in the in that program over time, there was, uh, the Challenger, uh, disaster in, uh, January of 1986. And, uh, later Columbia blew up in February of 2003. And in both cases, the first shuttle that went up after that was shuttle discovery. Wait, what? In both cases? In both cases, the uh, discovery went up after Challenger was the first shuttle launched after Challenger and discovery was also first launch after Columbia. Talk about drawing, drawing the shortest draw. Yeah. Uh, and so they knew from Columbia investigating that accident that there had been a loss of insulating foam out off of the external tank. 
Wait, no, wasn't the, the insulating foam was impacting the thermal tiles, correct? Correct. And that cracked or broke the thermal tiles, which caused the, uh, the thermal barrier not to exist, which allowed the, the vehicle to, uh, I, I'm guessing there was some sort of thermal effect that caused a loss of strength, but eventually the, the vehicle broke up on reentry. And so when they did testing for this, what they discovered, they couldn't figure out, you know, what was causing the failure. Uh, the only way they could get this foam to pop off to, to look, you know, like the same sort of loss of, uh, insulation that they had in, they knew from the, the photographs was when they caused there to be small defects embedded in the foam. So, sort of in the, in the foam itself, there had to be defects. And if they had that, if this defects were sufficient in number and size, the foam would pop off. And they could say, well, okay, well, this must be the reason the foam popped off and hit the thermal tiles and cracked the thermal tiles and eventually caused this destruction of the, of the vehicle. And so the, the, this, this version of the story that I'm uh, working from, I should mention, is uh, from a gentleman named Wayne Hale. And I'm reading from his blog called, of, of course, Wayne Hale's blog. So that's how, where I came across this story. So anyway... Uh, they thought they knew what the problem was. There must have been defects in the foam. And so they went back to the plant where the foam was being applied and they ran the, the staff, the, the people that were working in this facility through a lot of, uh, you know, study and they, you know, checked their application process and double checked it. And they worked overtime to make sure all the equipment was working right. And they did the, the best they can, could to, you know, improve the way the foam was applied to these external tanks so they wouldn't have the problem anymore. And so they got close to the launch and there came a report from the Columbia accident that said that the Columbia foam loss was not caused by internal defects in the foam. Okay. Following you so far. (laughs) And they weren't, they weren't sure what to do with this report because the internal defects in the foam was the only explanation they had for why the foam would come off in the first place. And they had spent 26 months, you know, retooling up and, and improving their process for applying their foam and, and, you know, checking cameras and doing testing and making sure this worked. And so they didn't know what to do with, you know, was this, was this a report correct? Did it, what did it mean that it couldn't be caused by this internal defect when the internal defect was the only thing they could discover through testing that it could be. So they decided they would launch Discovery. And so they did that, and the launch was normal. Flight went up. But later, as they reviewed the camera uh, footage and and they were checking things, the video evidence was that there was indeed a foam loss that hit the left wing of Discovery, just like what had happened on Columbia. And so for the people that were on the ground that have been involved with this, the engineers, uh, the, the uh, service technicians, you know, all the scientists, they were devastated because now we had another crew up in space with a damaged shuttle, a damaged vehicle, and were they going to be able to return home safely? And so they uh, alerted the crew of this problem. And because of the previous problem they had had on Columbia, they now had means for visually going and doing a closer inspection of the thermal tiles. 
And so, uh, they went, and I don't know if they did any, any external, uh, walks, but they, with the, the cameras and, and sensors and what they had available, they inspected the area of the heat shield and it showed no damage. And it looks like from the, you know, from when the foam came off, it did in fact hit the, the, the thermal tiles in the same way as what it happened on Columbia, but it just happened to impact it at an angle or speed or something that it glanced off. It didn't crack or damage the tiles. So everybody was happy. And in fact, the crew was able to return safely. But now they still had a problem. They couldn't send anybody else up until they figured out what was going on. Because obviously, the application of the foam had not fixed the problem. So, you know, they'd done all the testing they knew to do. So where do they turn? Well, it turns out that these external tanks normally... Uh, once NASA got them, they never returned them to the manufacturer. But they had had one particular tank that was having sensor problems, and they couldn't figure it out. And so even though it was expensive to do so, they sent this this tank back to uh, the factory where it had been assembled. This was a tank full of foam? or Well, the, this, was a, this, this was a tank that had foam around it. Oh, okay, okay. But but it hadn't been launched into space. And normally they didn't do this. In fact, this was the only tank that I understand, that, or the first tank they had ever returned to man, the manufacturer. So they happened to have a tank, a full tank, full-size tank, and they took x-rays of this tank to see what was going on. And it showed that there were cracks in the foam where no defects existed. So it wasn't, there were cracks but it wasn't defects in the foam. And so further study showed that thermal cycles in filling the tank would crack the foam, especially where there were multiple layers of the foam overlapping. Hmm. Did, you, did the article in any way indicate how many times they filled the tank? Uh, it did not. Okay. But, but it, what they said was, the interesting part was that they had done you know lots and lots of testing. How could they possibly miss it? And it turned out, that the tests, you know, tests for this problem on partial tanks were just fine. This problem only showed up when t- testing a complete tank. Hmm. Interesting. So at that point, then they knew what the problem was, this thermal cycling. They're able to take steps uh, and to uh, resolve that problem. And so uh, this is one of those cases where uh, I don't know what it's, it's not like it's an, an embarrassing engineering uh, oversight because there was really no oversight, just uh, people trying to do their best to figure out what's going on and just the information wasn't available. And, and uh, uh, they fortunately had a few lucky breaks there uh, that allowed them to figure out what the problem was and resolve it without a loss of human life. Another, uh, another instance of knowing what your test is actually testing. <laughs> hmm. Right. But again, it's it's hard. Sometimes you do the best you possibly can do, and that you just don't get the answer or the information you're looking for. All right, Adam, I think we're back up to you on the rotation. We spin the wheel again. Oh, we, do we need one of those casino reels? Wheels? Click, 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 click. So, um, I guess since we're talking about space. Um, here, here's another, uh, uh, very expensive mistake. Um, the Mars climate orbiter, um, unit conversion issue. <laughs> I think we've mentioned that one before. <laughs> I, th- oh, I think we have. 
So the gist of it is um, someone forgot to change units. So the, the Mars Climate Orbiter was uh, a probe sent to Mars. Minute to Mars was preparing to uh, enter orbit. And um, the computer sending uh, information produced a output in um, force or pound seconds instead of the SI unit of Newton seconds. So you mean freedom units? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So the computer um, put out freedom units and it was correct. And the uh, the orbiter was expecting um, metric. Um, um, what, what, what what's the uh, the other term for those? Socialist units. Socialist units. Yes. <laughs> So um, the, 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 the probe is expecting uh, the inferior socialist units um, and proceeded to uh, pass through the upper atm- atmosphere, disintegrate, um, loss of the probe. Um, after the millions of dollars it costs to send a probe to Mars, uh, oh. <laughs> bill, billions, Million, sorry. Millions? Sorry, sorry. You, you used millions. Y- yes, I, I realized it after I said it. Um, there's a, a, a uh, um, yeah, several more digits on that. <laughs> yeah, what's the cost of a Delta II launch? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a boatload? <laughs> Yes, a metric boatload. <laughs> no, remember, metric units are inferior. Yes. <laughs> that was the cause of this whole thing. Um, How many hogshead are in a uh, in a league? No, it's hogshead per cord, right? Something like that. They don't have a cost. I think that you're talking about at least $100 million at launch. Let's just call it that. Yeah, yeah. Um, huge, huge amounts of money. The thing, you know, it's nearly a year there. And unit conversion error, or lack of unit conversion, more correctly, um, total loss of the mission. And interestingly enough, not the only uh, unit conversion error NASA's ever had. Um, uh, what? <laughs> wasn't there? Um, oh, I don't. I, I I don't have it at hand right now. But um, I knew there were some early rockets that went down because of a missing minus sign. Uh, the cost of a Delta II heavy in 2016 dollars is 107 million dollars. Jeez. All right, so I may be incorrect about the multiple unit errors, but um, yeah. Bottom line, lots of money. No one died. Uh, no one hurt, um, except potentially the person who failed to make sure that unit uh, error happened. But we we don't. That was not a publicized. Uh, uh, a bit of information. I suspect some people probably got a, a, sw- a stern talking to after that one. <laughs> there, there's <laughs> this is actually there's actually something called metrication. It was this is evidently uh, the conversion of imperial units to metric, and there's a whole part of the article talking about accidents and incidents related to it. This is an actual term. Yeah. Well, in, in my industry, there was a time, um, and it's coming up and causing trouble now, where um, we went metric for a period of uh, several years. Mm-hmm. And um, the way this would happen is surveyors would go out, survey in, in freedom units, convert to metric, 
give it to the designers who would convert to, to freedom units, do the design and then convert to metric and then provide it to the contractor who would take the metric uh, plans, convert to freedom units, construct it. <laughs> See, if only they'd worked in freedom units to start off with, by the way, metrication and accidents and incidents related to it is also the cause of another one of my favorite non-lethal engineering errors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Has anyone ever heard of the Gimli Glider? No. What is the Gimli Glider? Name rings a bell, but I'm fuzzy on the details. Okay. So imagine you are in a brand new 767 flying carefree across Canada. And all of a sudden, one engine goes out. And as you're troubleshooting why one engine went out, the other engine goes out as well. Okay. So now you are flying at 35,000 feet, no engines. Hmm. And it's it was a result of uh, kilograms to pounds where fuel was loaded in pounds instead of kilograms. And they literally flew and lost <laughs> – lost complete propulsion at at altitude and it resulted in the plane having to glide first i i can't remember where they first diverted to and they were going to come up short and they went to a i think a royal canadian air force base that turned out to have been turned into a drag race strip <laughs> this is a hundred percent true it is actually they told me about it on my tour at boeing this is ringing bells and they ended up doing a basically a glide descent and landing on to uh, even better it was a drag race strip with an active drag race going on <laughs> <laughs> uh the gimli motor sports park and they ended up landing everyone was safe i i think what they were able to land and like the front landing gear didn't come down i mean it's crazy everyone survived only 10 minor injuries i think all during evacuation <sighs> if they'd only used freedom units <laughs> and that was also partially made possible by the uh it's called the rat that's installed on all the Boeing planes. It's like Ram Ram air turbine or something like mm-hmm. that. And if you lose electronics, you know, this turbine can still extend, you know, via hydraulics or some other method and it spins and it gets you emergency power for things like the slats and, you know, pitch and yaw and all that good stuff. So you can still sort of maneuver your glider. Well, if I, if I remember correctly, the, the Ram air turbine basically, you know, is held in place, I believe by, by, some form of power, and if you lose power, the thing ought it's like a little wind turbine, yeah, and it basically drops out of the bottom of the plane by you know as a fail safe, yeah, I remember it was a fail safe, I don't remember all the details. My tour was a long time ago, so and I've actually flown in a glider, and there's this maneuver that they do called a crab, and I'm gonna screw up describing this tonight, but I will tell you that it is the scariest thing as a non-glider pilot that you can ever experience. Um, It's a way to quickly lose altitude and airspeed when you want to. (laughs) In a a way, like it's great if you're in a plane, if, if, if you need to actually hit a point on a runway, 
it's great. So you don't overfly the runway because you can't go back around clearly in a glider. Yeah. But basically, they turn the rudder one direction and basically plunge the nose and ailerons in the opposite direction. So, like, you have this really unsettling feeling of simultaneously turning sideways and plunging at the ground. And I believe the the guy who is flying the plane did that with a 767 hmm. on a drag strip. Impressive. And that is why we still have humans in the cockpits. Yep. Also, it's an, it's an excellent example of how far a plane can glide without, uh, uh, without any engine propulsion. Yeah. It's actually quite shocking. I would have thought if you would have asked me ahead of time, physics wise, what would have happened? I would have thought it would just would have dropped out of the sky, but no, it actually, I'm trying to quickly scan. It went tens of miles. I thought maybe even 20, 30 miles, but I don't, I can't find that anywhere. Anyways. It glided a considerable distance. Yes. Okay. Yeah, which shouldn't surprise us. It For whatever reason, it surprised me. <laughs> All right. Well, let's so let us uh, spin once more the wheel of uh, engineering difficulties. Very good. What do you have anything for us, Brian? Oh yeah, he just did one. <laughs> well, no, I I did the Gimli glider, but hey, can we talk about the USS Yorktown? Sure. No. What What about the USS Yorktown? So we're not talking about the World War II legendary aircraft carrier. We are talking about the Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser that was a showpiece for the smart ship testbed, Mm -hmm. which is a demonstration of what happens when you run an entire – when you run the propulsion system and um, – uh, critic, critical ship functions on a 200 megahertz Pentium Pro running Windows NT. <laughs> um, anyone heard of this one yet? I have not. Mm-hmm. Nope. Nope. All right. So this was in the late 90s or mid to late 90s, you know, starting to integrate IT systems into ships and demonstrating what that could, you know, what that could do. Right. You literally had a crew member accidentally enter a zero into a database field. You've got a division by zero error, which caused the entire ship to crash and lose propulsion. So when you say crash, what do you mean? Uh, the ships, the ship systems basically blue screened. Okay. So the computers crashed, not that we it didn't run aground. Yes, but they managed to integrate it evidently to a point where it wasn't just a minor nuisance. The entire ship lost power. Okay. And depends on who you're willing to believe. There's varying accounts of the ship needed to be towed back to port Mm -hmm. to the ship was just dead in the water for two, almost three hours with no propulsion. Okay. So. So it's amazing with all the, uh, the high-priced electronics that were available to the uh, to the military that they decided to run the ship on Windows NT. <laughs> yep, uh, you know it's there was another one too that's kind of similar to this and military related. I want to say the very first time the F twenty two Raptors were deploying to um, the Western Pacific, 
mm-hmm. the moment they crossed the international date line, several onboard systems failed and they had to uh, divert to Pearl Harbor. Hmm. <laughs> and it turned out they had a, a, basically a clock equivalent to the Y2K issue that uh, caused several critical systems to fail. Hmm. <laughs> they couldn't handle the international date line. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I got a fun one to keep this party going. <laughs> okay. What you got? Um, it was the first IC I ever worked on, and the damn thing didn't start up at all. The first IC? Anything. Is that the first ick? Yeah, the first ick. What's, it, what, what's an IC? <laughs> uh, integrated circuit. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, and what did you do with this integrated circuit? <laughs> I was supposed to help validate it and make sure it worked. And so I had my eval board all nice and ready. And when I say the first IC I worked on, I mean, like, I'd been at Intersil for, I forget if it was two, maybe three months. I was about as green as they came. Mm-hmm. I had just enough time to design an eval board, get it shipped out, and, uh, you know, get it back. And it was all set and ready. We're waiting for parts. The day comes. I have the tech help me put the part on so I learned how to use the soldering machine. And Nothing. Nothing. Um, it just doesn't do anything at all. You know, you make sure all the voltages, the input voltages are there. You're flicking enable, you're heating it up, cooling it off, trying to just get anything to happen on the output and it's refusing to start for anything. And here I am panicking, thinking it's my eval board. Oh my God, this new engineer, I'm going to go nuts. You know, they're going to fire me for incompetence or something, even though I went through all the layout reviews and schematic reviews and everything and no one else caught anything this obvious. Um, and I'm sitting there panicking, panicking, panicking. The designers, you know, got my board. He's over in Texas somewhere and he can't get it to do anything. So after a few days of like pulling my hair out, they finally decide to like look at the dye under uh, a microscope, you know, in the design lab or whatever. And they're doing a failure analysis and somebody, I don't know if it was, I forget who, if it was the layout guy or it was someone in the fab or whatever, no one noticed that in the files they sent over to get this chip built, they just never included the the layer for a certain type of resistor. And that resistor just happened to be used all over the damn startup circuit. (laughs) (laughs) So this resistor was just never built. And as the designer was probing around on the die, he's like, you know, trying to get IV curves of certain things. And he's like, why is this what's supposed to be a resistor reading like infinite resistance? And after some digging, boom. Resistor was just never built. The thing would have never started up no matter what we did <laughs> due to some, you know, partially corrupted computer file or someone misclicking, uh, you know, a generate the layout package or whatever the hell they had to do. I've heard of that happening in circuit boards too, where, you know, like you layer find one gets the, mixed up with layer four or whatever. You'll find out that the board house decided to take negative space on part of your board and, Make it positive space. Mm-hmm. And you have a whole bunch of copper somewhere you didn't expect it. Yeah. Yeah. This one, I, I don't know. I don't think they purposely didn't build it. I think it was something, you know, in the handoff of this is ready to be built versus, okay, we are now ready to go start building it. But, yeah, that was a fun little interesting problem. Did you have a pretty good PI lab that made it easy to decap the part? Uh, no, we didn't have to decap a part. I think we actually had, uh, wafers. So we grabbed some wafers since it was doing it for all the parts on all the boards. Um, you know, we just grabbed some wafers off the line or wherever, you know, we had extra wafers that weren't packaged yet. We started there. Saves time. 
So yeah, fun little failure. And uh, <laughs> I got to breathe a, a big sigh of relief when I realized it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell you what, we're getting uh, we're getting close to the uh, the hour mark here. So uh, let me add one more story. And uh, sounds good. We'll uh, finish up with that with maybe uh, a few comments about maybe what you do after you've discovered you've made a mistake. So there is a uh, an airport that has been built at sea. It, I love this story. Th- this is called, I believe, the uh, Kansai Airport, K-A-N-S-A-I, Kansai Airport in Japan, that is sinking into the ocean. It's a $17 billion, with a B, $17 billion facility that is settling into the ocean at a rate 44 years ahead of schedule. Um, and so they decided that they would create this airport on relatively soft ground. And so they knew that the sinkage would be a problem. Uh, but the, uh, the engineers, I'm assuming, who gave the information to the officials who claimed that it would settle no more than 30, 38 feet over 50 years. Uh, well, it turned out that they were way off. <laughs> and uh, so the terminal is already eight inches lower than it was expected to sink after 50 years, right? So they guessed 38 feet over 50 years, and it's already below <laughs> 38 feet. Uh, and so the uh, the terminal – uh, or they've got hydraulic jacks to lift uh, columns and to uh, place uh, basically spacers underneath uh, the columns to, you know, keep everything level. Uh, but this thing continues to sink. Apparently what happened was the soft clay ground underneath, uh, they knew it would be spongy, uh, but they just didn't calculate correctly how this all this extra weight would would compress the water out of the clay and the clay clay would settle or compress more quickly. Uh, and so they've got a, uh, a giant airport that uh, is sinking into the ground or into the ocean. And because of the costs of all this uh, extra work, uh, their, their landing fees are higher. And so what are the airlines doing? They're refusing to land there. And so that causes financial problems uh, for the airport. Uh, well, and I saw, I saw a documentary in this and it, I mean, it, it makes sense. Cause I think this is a fairly real estate limited area. If I remember correctly, this is off the coast of Osaka. And I also think this is maybe one of the first times somebody has tried to do this kind of land reclamation. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have done land reclamation. I'm thinking of, you know, the Dutch projects, but trying to do it in a way where you actually are then building complicated structures on top of it. I shouldn't say complicated structures. Um, well, maybe let's just leave it at complicated structures. But there's really hilarious pictures of them having to add stairs to the bottom of the stairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Of things going down to the basement and the process by which they constantly have to go around and use hydraulic rams to jack up columns and put plates underneath them. Right, right. Well, and and um, I'll say my my knowledge is, or to my understanding, in the last decade or so, there's been a fair amount of um, advancement in actually solving these kinds of problems. Um, there's 
I'm aware of a couple of roads that just kept sinking into bogs. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously not in the middle of the ocean or anything, but um, it became a problem. And now there's, um, well, there's actually roads. Uh, I can think of a couple that are basically built on styrofoam. Hmm. Um, and, and so there, there've been a lot of, and some other types of improvements to, to deal with these kinds of, of extremely compressible soils, um, which are, it's a huge challenge. Um, not that that makes it any cheaper for the, uh, the, the poor people who have to now deal with this airport. Right. Well, I, I, they're, and that's kind of the funny thing is they're not poor. This was a, this was a serious first world problem. Wasn't there a really clever solution with, uh, related to this with dealing with the leaning tower of Pisa where they'd done the measurements and it, you, you had an accelerating lean. And I wanted to say they actually either removed soil or injected material on one side in order to partially co- correct the lean. Yeah. If they were, <laughs> if they were smart, of course they didn't correct it fully. <laughs> Because well, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that, that would make the tourists quit coming to the town. Yes, now it's just the Tower of Pisa. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I do remember something about um, it, it's been in danger in the last uh, short period of time of um, collapsing mm-hmm. as, it, as it continues to lean. Yeah, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that you know, counterweights were added in 1998. I want to say that I've seen pictures of you know them drilling cores basically underneath one side in order to partially tip it back and preserve it yeah you know quick view of wikipedia says that uh, there was a restoration between 1990 and 2001 uh the tower leaned at that point it leaned at an angle of 5.5 degrees but it now leans at an angle of 3.99 degrees oh acceptable this means the top of the tower is displaced horizontally 3.9 meters from the center. See if they'd only use freedom units. Well, then it would have been 12 <laughs> feet, 10 inches. There would be no problem. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it looks like Earth was uh, removed based on um, our, our the wonderful source of Wikipedia. Um, and they, they added weights to, to bring it back. But... Um, yeah. Another fine engineering solution to an engineering problem. Yes. Or wait a minute. Engineers don't have problems, right? Everybody else has problems. Another fine engineering solution to somebody else's problem. Exactly. Now you're learning. (laughs) Yeah. Gotta deflect. You know, in reality, it's it's one of the risks of uh, civil engineering, all these soil problems, is you can core, but you never know. Three feet over might be something completely different. I want to say I've heard stories and maybe even seen a picture of two of like giant test loads that the Nazis built in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Adam, you ever heard anything about this? Um, not maybe. Like they were, uh, remember how the Nazis had really, I shouldn't say the Nazis, what's his name? Um, Albert Speer and Adolf had like really grand plans for, the capital um if the war hadn't gotten in the way and they and from what i understand berlin is also built on kind of swampy area and 
there was concern about could the soil handle all of these grand things they wanted to build. And so they actually built giant concrete test loads or proof loads in order to demonstrate how much sinkage or subsidence there would be under the weight of these proposed structures to kind of deal with the Leaning Tower Pisa type issue. Yeah. Well, and they're still around. Evidently, these loads are still around. Well, it doesn't surprise me. They're so big that, like, they they couldn't even get rid of them. Yeah. Well, um, actually, an an inter- a uh, engineering solution to these sorts of problems is um, something called. D- it depends on the problem, but something called a surcharge, mm-hmm. where you um, you build a big pile of dirt, usually because dirt's cheap, over the area that you need better bearing capacity of and you you also dewater at the time because water is the the problem with all civil engineering problems basically um and you, you basically preload the soils and then uh they can handle the, that new heavier load okay so jeff you've just sent me a link to an example of what i was talking about and they are still around can you pronounce that i'm not even gonna try <laughs> <laughs> There's 20 letters in it, <laughs> and an umlaut. Okay, I, I, I'll, I'll give it a try. Here we go. Schwerbelsterstang uh, Scorper. Doing you doing good there, so far? There, there's 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 <laughs> there there are our listeners in Germany. They're just cringing right now. I uh, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give this a shot. Grofbelastrong Kroper. There's an AKA also, and I know what that funny-looking B is actually an F. But it translates as heavy load-bearing body. And it is a 36-foot in diameter cylinder that reaches roughly 60 feet tall. That was a pretty good, that was a pretty good concrete pour. Yeah. All one pour? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how they did it, but pretty good size. So, there you go. All right. Well, so if if uh, we should make a mistake, uh, I, there's an article here that I came across that says, your foolproof guide to moving on after you messed up at work. You're willing to go through. There's seven things here. We'll not spend a lot of time. You're willing to go through and see if any of these make sense to you? Sure. Sure. All right. Let's try this one. Step one, allow yourself to feel awful about it, but not for too long. How is the first one, not blame quality assurance. <laughs> <laughs> or computer science people or anybody else. Yes. Well, it, but this is this is like, like it, it starts out with in response to a stressful scenario like making a mistake at work. It's natural to feel frustrated, embarrassed, or even distressed for, say, 10 or 15 seconds. But ideally, after 15 seconds, the feeling should pass. A tiny, tiny shadow of negativity may linger, but in general, you get over the snafu. How can you tell yourself not to feel what you feel, what you feel, what, you know, if you make a mistake, you may feel miserable for, you know, days, weeks, years, you know, what I was, I was about to say, whoever wrote that article has not made a really big mistake. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I, I guess it makes sense. Allow yourself to feel awful about it, but not for too long. We'll, we'll argue about 15 seconds being the right to the right period of time. Okay. Step two, keep things in perspective. See, and number two should be prepare a resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It says, try to make sure your emotional response is proportional to the blunder you made. I think, <laughs> I think, I think you're correct, Brian. Prepare a resume. <laughs> well, and, and for the uh, the students and, and young engineers out there who who don't maybe understand this yet, a big mistake is a matter of scale. Um, a couple thousand dollars is generally not a big mistake. That depends, but I will also say yes. And I did we go out of the way to not mention anything that killed lots of people? Yeah. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, because seriously, step one maybe contact your attorney, you know, or find your passport. Like, depending upon how big of a mistake you made. Yes, but those are going to be rare. Very, hopefully, very, very, very rare. Yeah, vanishingly small. You have to disappear, or can. <laughs> All right. Uh, step three: confront your worst case scenario, and then let it go. Step three, log into LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, I don't know. This sounds too uh, textbook. Like you can actually go through these steps. I step four, find non-extradition countries. Yeah, con- confront your worst case scenario. I can always come up with bad worst case scenarios. <laughs> All right. Uh, step four, apologize if you need to, but don't overdo it. If you need to apologize for your goof, do it swiftly and briefly. Hi, Jim. I made a mistake, and I'm working on correcting it as soon as possible. On a side note, I would recommend, uh, what is it, Jocko's TED Talk on Extreme Ownership. Okay. Don't know if I've watched that one. Um, what's, his, what's his full name? It's really great. Like it's, it, it talks explicitly about that. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's by a Navy SEAL who was involved in a friendly fire incident. Well, I will locate that and put a link to it in the show notes. Jacko Willenick. Very good. Uh, step five, create a game plan for next time. Evaluate what you need to do differently next time to make sure the same mistake doesn't happen again. A- actually, I will say sometimes you can't avoid that. It's, it's sort of like the challenger thing or the uh, discovery thing, right? They knew they had a problem, but they couldn't. They were doing everything they could to figure out what had caused the mistake, but sometimes you you haven't uncovered that. So, yeah, that's probably a little different than what they're saying here. You know, I guess they're saying just don't uh, pretend like the problem never existed. Yeah, and one thing to do as you learn from your mistakes is, um, you know, you start not trusting results that are either very good or very bad. Um, I had some really good results a couple of weeks ago about how our part performed. And I, I went ahead and tested four or five different parts against other parts and double, triple confirmed it before I even mentioned it to anybody else. <laughs> Just tried trying to break it and say, all right, well, that, that seems almost too good to be true. Right. Uh, let's, let's explore this fully here. Right. Well, and, and that's something you, you learn with experiences, a, a gut feel for what's right. Yeah. And you're not you're not joking about the negative side. It's I mean it's it's one thing to go down the path of you see really good results. Sometimes it's really easy to freak out when you see horrendously negative results. Especially in cases when you think you know, I had an instance when you know our best instrument was lying to us and our less accurate instrument wasn't. And yeah. You know, 
almost caused a corporate seizure as a result of, you know, somebody just not understanding how to use the best instrument. (laughs) Well, and I have told a number of engineering colleagues uh, going through difficult times, especially you can't let yourself get too high emotionally when things are going well, and you can't let yourself get too low when things are going poorly. So we're limiting our highs and uh, limiting our lows. Uh, Step six says take better care of yourself and seems to indicate that uh, there are problems with sleepiness, poor nutrition, dehydration, sitting too long in your chair, a lack of exercise. So get serious about your well-being. I suppose that's good advice, but I'm not sure that really has much direct correlation with having made a mistake. Well, when you're running from the authorities, you kind (laughs) of need to be – in decent shape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that's something you should do before you make the mistake then, right? Yes. Okay. Right. Just start running from the authorities preemptively? Yes. No, well, you well, can't get you know, caught if yeah. they're not looking for you. Yeah. All right. Well, and so uh, uh, finally, while you're uh, evading the authorities, uh, somehow <laughs> earn back trust through your actions. Step seven, earn back trust through your actions, not just your words. So you have to uh, consistently deliver great work and uh, not just uh, apologize. I think it's all life coach mumbo jumbo you had on this article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I think a feel-good article, but I'm not sure that uh, if, if you make a big mistake, it can stay with you for a while. So Yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, bottom line, don't hide it. Get help. Fix it. Yeah, I the you know as with many things, the problem usually is not with the initial error. There there may be there may be career consequences to that. There may be some yelling due to that. Uh, but if you have bad results and hide that, or or you know let it become a worse result, uh, then that's usually a a makes the consequences uh, that much more uh, difficult to bear when they finally arrive. Yeah, and that they will be. Uh, far worse. And uh, when that court case comes along and, and you covered it up, it's going to be a whole lot harder to defend than if uh, you guys, if you went and corrected it or tried to correct it as soon as you found out. Uh, yes. Although I, <laughs> you, you may find attorneys that will differ in what you should do. So uh, let us point out, we are not legal counsel. And if you find yourself in difficult problems, you know, listen to your attorney. Yes. Yes. Do not count on us as attorneys. <laughs> Please do not. <laughs> Did we say in the last episode we were allowed to call ourselves attorneys as long as we weren't actually receiving money? That may have come up. Yes. Uh, yes, I think you pointed out that we can lie and call ourselves anything we want, uh, at least here in the States with the First Amendment rights. Yes. So, you know, Adam is representing himself as an attorney, so take his advice. <laughs> No, <laughs> I don't think that the, that's the point he was making. Yeah, that sounds like the opposite of the point I was making, actually. Actually, uh, that again, that should be a great future episode is actually getting an attorney on here and talking about engineering liability. Okay, well, so let us put out the, uh, the call to the great uh, Engineering Commons listenership. And if uh, you are an attorney in this, working in this area or you know an attorney working in this area, Liability, engineering liability and liability law. Shoot us off an email. Use the contact page on the website, theengineeringcommons.com, and uh, we'll try to set up an episode uh, talking about that topic. Giddy up. Wouldn't it be great if 
the first attorney who calls us is also a chemical engineer. <laughs> oh, that would be perfect. <laughs> we can only hope. Karmic justice. It's like a unicorn with wings. It would be beautiful. Is that a Pegasus? Or no, Pegasuses don't have horns. Well, I mean, according to the canon, but yes. There's a cannon. We're going to shoot down the Pegasus. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I think we've uh, we've covered enough talking about the uh, embarrassing engineering mistakes, uh, and so uh, we'll uh, we'll adjourn for this episode and get together in a couple more weeks to do another round of the engineering commons. When there's a fresh glass of Lagavulin, works for me. <laughs> All right. Take care, guys. All right. Later, Jeff. Bye. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>